Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 84. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. We are back once again to talk about some of the cutting-edge intel being shared by our awesome community in the Lima Charlie Slack channel, and a huge thank you to all those folks that take the time to share their knowledge with the rest of us. If you enjoy listening in on these Intel chats and aren't in our community Slack channel yet, then you should go join the conversation. Much more information than we can get through on the show is being shared there, and you will get it in real time. You can join the Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. And as always, for these chats, I'm joined by the one and only Matt Bromley. How are you doing today, Matt? Hey, Chris. Another week. I'm doing well, sir. Doing well. We got a lot of cool stuff to go over today, and uh, there's been some some really cool things happening in the Intel channel, Slack channel has been growing as well. I've been watching a lot of folks pouring in over the past few weeks. It's been fantastic. But before we get into it, I think you've got a special announcement for us, Chris. Yeah, I, I just wanted to let everybody know that the charity initiative we talked about a couple of weeks ago on this show, Cybersecurity Cares, is going to be coming to an end this Friday, December 15th. To wrap it up, we're going to be streaming an all-day live stream telethon with folks from all around the industry. Overall, it's going to be pretty casual, but there will be a few performances sprinkled in throughout the day as well as some educational content. Uh, Cybersecurity Cares is a community effort involving over 20 different cybersecurity companies that have all rallied together to raise money in support of a national nonprofit working to end domestic violence. And as of this recording, we've raised $13,780 so far this year, and we're looking to beat the high water mark of 26000 we set last year. We'd really love to have you join us for the telethon. You can learn more and find a link to the live stream on Friday at cybersecurity-cares.com. That's cybersecurity-cares.com. All righty, let's get to it. This first one coming to us from a Reuters article. Unidentified governments are surveilling smartphone users via their apps push notifications, as reported by a U.S. senator on December 6. In a letter to the Department of Justice, Senator Ron Wyden said foreign officials were demanding push notification data from Alphabet's Google and Apple. Although the details were sparse, the letter clearly demonstrates yet another path by which governments can track smartphones and ultimately people. I'm sure everybody listening knows what a push notification is, but the part that is maybe not so obvious is that almost all push notification traffic traverses Google's or Apple's servers, which can provide some very unique insight into individual human behavior. Senator Wyden said he asked the Department of Justice to repeal or modify any policies that hindered public discussions of push notification spying. In turn, a statement from Apple said that Wyden's letter gave them the opening they needed to share more details with the public about how governments monitored push notifications. In this case, the federal government prohibited us from sharing any information, Apple said in a statement. Quote, now that this method has become public, we're updating our transparency reporting to detail these kinds of requests. Google also chimed in and said that it shared Senator Wyden's commitment to keeping users' information about these requests. The Department of Justice declined to comment on the push notification surveillance or whether it had prevented Apple or Google from talking about it. When I first started reading this, I immediately thought foreign governments, but as you read through, it becomes obvious that they are including the U.S. government. I'm not super familiar with how push notification function, but I imagine given they are tied to your SIM card, it would be a way to tie a real-world identity to an app that the user was signed in with, with the intention of staying anonymous. I wonder if a push notification would have sender and receiver data for encrypted messenger apps like Signal. Matt, are you familiar with this tech at all? And can you help us speculate on what kind of intelligence could be gleaned from monitoring push notifications? 
Yeah, absolutely, Chris. So this is one of those instances where, you know, if I was to make an analog comparison, I would think very much about, uh, let's just say, you know, uh, someone has a phone, okay? You're not able to see or, or maybe you're not able to see the caller ID. You're not able to see who, you know, who's placing the call and you can't see the dial pad, but you can hear the phone when it rings and you're sitting in a room next to someone and their phone is just ringing all the time and your phone is not. There's a few inferences you could make about that, right? There's a few things you could make about that, such as, wow, this person's receiving a lot of phone calls. There's a lot of traffic there. There's a lot of things happening. And even though you don't know the content of those calls for, in that fact, for all technical sense, you know, the metadata of that information, you, you are still able to glean a lot of information about what's happening there and make a lot of assumptions about what's happening there. The other thing that's possible is you can then start to use time-based correlation. So let's say you're sitting next to an individual and at 1 PM, that individual was on the phone. And then some, you know, six months down the road, some court case or whatever comes down and they say, where were you on, you know, December 12th at 6 p.m. or 1 p.m. or whatever time it is. And they can say, oh, well, I, I wasn't, you know, I don't remember where I was, right? Well, I do. You were there on the phone. Long story short, and that's a very analog analogy, but what it does is it gives you a point of reference to identify activity and identify what's happening with a particular account without even seeing the contents of what's going on in that account. So you can start to make assumptions. You can start to make statements. Um, and I believe that's what's happening in this case right here. Uh, I read through and, and according to the letter, uh, for, you know, governments, we won't say foreign or domestic, but governments cannot view the contents of push notifications. But what they can do is start to correlate what's happening you know, with the phone, with certain accounts and other types of activity and things that may be happening. Um, and they may have other insight into kind of what's going on and whatnot. And I think this is a way to say, you know, oh, well, I never received those messages or I never got this or I never got that. However, metadata shows that push notifications were received at that time. So I think what we're seeing in this case, and I, I really want to read more into Senator Wyden's letter, but I think what he's saying and kind of what I'm, what I'm getting out of this here is that it's another way for folks to yet again track what users are doing on their mobile phones without even needing to see the contents of what's happening just by looking at sheer volume and the fact that the notification was received, probably in addition to other technical details as well. So you can't see the content. Does that eliminate the sender details so you can't tell which app is pushing it? That's the part I'm not entirely sure about. Um, I, I did read a little bit through the letter, you know, and uh, what, what I think what's what's the big thing to focus on here. And I'm, I'm looking at the letter from Senator Wyden here where it says push notifications aren't sent directly from the app provider to the user smartphones. Instead, they pass through a quote unquote digital post office, right, for uh, Apple or Google, depending on where it's going to and whatnot. And what he's, what he's saying, what he's insinuating is that because you have this medium, because you have this pass through, those mediums or pass throughs can be and are being compelled to provide that data back. Now, Chris, let's back this up, you and I. Imagine a, a real post office. A post office doesn't send mail, right? It's a distributor. It receives and then it delivers to where it's supposed to go. It needs to have the sender and the destination. Now, I'm not sure exactly what metadata is provided to a foreign government about a push notification, but I'll tell you the exact same concept. If I'm an intermediary, 
I'm a post office. I'm a pass through. I need to have sender and I need to have recipient. So there's a chance without even knowing the content of the message itself, there's a chance that you can say, ah, Matt received 10 push notifications from Slack. That's an indication of something versus Chris received, Chris received 10 push notifications from his health app or something along those lines. So there may be a way to kind of backtrack and see what's happened there. Yeah, that's what I was thinking right away as far as a risk goes is there's definitely some apps that people could use where they wouldn't even want people to know they had those apps. Correct. And what you just hit on. So I'm again, reading Senator Wyden's letter, I'll quote again, the data these two companies receive includes meta. And this is what Apple and Google receive exactly what we just called out, right? The data received by them includes metadata detailing the app received a notification, the phone associated with that account, and to where that notification should be delivered. And in some cases, they might also receive unencrypted content that is displayed in the form of a push notification. So I think what Senator Wyden's getting at here is, look, this isn't a fail-proof or, you know, this isn't a foolproof system. There's still vulnerabilities and holes and gaps in there that need to be sorted out. And some governments have figured this out and they're using it to their advantage. But I think what you said is exactly the right thing to focus on. Not so much, oh, they're reading my push notifications. They saw my, you know, they saw my Uber Eats order. It's more along the lines of, I don't want anyone else to know I have this app and now they do. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, never can tell. Got to stay safe out there. Someone's always watching. That's right. (laughs) This one's being reported by Cyber.WTF. In an incident response case earlier this year, Cyber.WTF encountered an interesting piece of malware that turned out to be a rat written in C-sharp. In the post they shared, they give an overview about how it was loaded onto the systems and what its general capabilities are. Basically, it involves some obfuscated PowerShell that was used to deploy the malware, which then subsequently downloaded the rat payload. The researchers note that the RAT relies on a lot of third-party code that is bundled into the assembly, almost all of it being open source and available on GitHub. The RAT lists key logging, loading more code, data exfiltration, and network reconnaissance amongst its capabilities, a full list of commands being listed in the article. So this one felt like a fairly technical breakdown of a middle-of-the-road piece of malware to me. Was there anything about this one that stood out for you, Matt? Oh, my goodness. Obfuscation on top of obfuscation on top of obfuscation. I nearly gave myself an aneurysm reading through this code. (laughs) Oh, my Lord, it is so scattered up. And I mean, it's funny because I'm reading a screenshot or I'm looking at a screenshot that is an absolute mess. And then the caption is this goes on for a couple more thousand lines. And I'm like, oh, my Lord. I mean, I I will note for anyone out there, there are auto obfuscators out there um, and auto de-obfuscators as well, which actually help out with that. But uh, nonetheless, you know, Chris, I, I think this is another example of someone who really wants to stay hidden below the wire. So they just obfuscated the the heck out of everything um, to ultimately lead into, you know, a, a bunch of PowerShell and uh, a C-sharp based rat, right? At the end of the day, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a very long road to get there at the end of the day. One thing I found interesting, uh, some of the different kind of capabilities the, the rat that they kind of um, went through and deconstructed here relies on a lot of third-party code that was baked in. I think this is something we've seen before, but it's also very typical of malware developers as well. Someone else wrote it. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to do better at writing it. But this one had um, Bleak, Keystroke API, DLL Loader, Lunar API, uh, Mega API, um, Eternal Blue Tester, Sharpsploit, WebSocket. I mean, this had all sorts of third-party capabilities in it. Someone went out there with some really powerful glue and just brought it all together to make this this piece of malware here. But 
nonetheless. Uh, you know, outside of maybe some interesting obfuscation and a combination of a bunch of different libraries, I, it seems like a pretty much, you know, kind of run of the mill malware. I think whoever put this together just wanted a little bit of everything. So they just did some Google searching across GitHub and here's all these libraries Frankenstein together. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing exceptional stood out for me. But I did notice the obfuscation as well. Is that simply just to make the job of researchers harder? I think it's a little bit of researchers as well as auto detection and evasion and whatnot. You know, you get to a PowerShell script that takes you 5, 10, 15 minutes to unpack. It's just like, I I give up, right? I'm done. Um, However, admittedly, I will tell folks the fastest way to unpack an obfuscated PowerShell script is just run it through PowerShell in a sandbox or something like that. But again, if I'm doing static analysis as a, or I should say dead analysis as a malware analyst, I'm not running it through for obvious reasons. I might not want to run this just because I don't want the adversary to know what's going on or maybe I don't have a sandbox. It's going to take a while to unpack this thing. So this next one coming to us from Dark Reading, apparently is Israel's critical infrastructure is under threat from an Iranian proxy hacking group operating out of Lebanon. Iran's partnership with armed militant groups throughout the Middle East is well documented, but less widely known as its collaboration with extranational hackers like Polonium, aka Plaid Rain, which since 2021 has seemingly operated with the sole purpose of attacking Israel. According to Microsoft, in the spring of 2022 alone, Polonium spied on more than 20 Israeli organizations across commercial, critical, and government sectors, including transportation, critical manufacturing, IT, finance, agriculture, and healthcare. On December 4th, Israel's National Cyber Directorate warned that Polonium has targeted further critical infrastructure sectors, including water and energy. And besides espionage, the directorate wrote, a trend to implement destructive attacks has recently been identified. Polonium likes to exploit Fortinet devices either through leaked credentials or the publicly or the publicly disclosed CVE-2018-13379 for command and control. It tends to use services like OneDrive, Dropbox, and Mega. The article goes into a few more details about Polonium's attack pattern, but it all stays at a high level. If anything, I think this article just emphasizes how big of a component cyber has become in any kinetic conflict. Anything you want to add to this one, Matt? Chris, I don't think anything that shouldn't be expected, and I don't say that with a light heart. I think more exactly as you called out, cyber becoming part of that whole kinetic battleground, and you know, it, it, it's all just kind of shaping up there, right? Attacks from all angles, if you will. Uh, I, I think this one is again, you know, it's a proxy-based attack. Um, it, it's been linked to an Iranian founding, and, and they're going after kind of—I I don't want to call it the usual suspects, but I will call it the usual techniques, if you will. This isn't something novel or new necessarily you know this is going after leaked fortinet vpn credentials going after a 9.8 cvss uh, vulnerability and stuff like that before the devices were patched i mean typical stuff we've talked about before from an adversary perspective you know targeting vulnerable devices targeting things that aren't patched and whatnot and i think if anything it's just further confirmation that when you get into a kinetic warfare state expect cyber activity to maybe ramp up. But I mean, there's nothing from this group changing their targets if they need to. So just another one of those advices to just keep updated, change passwords, rotate things through as your external perimeter devices, you know, fall under vulnerability and stuff like that, patch the best that you can and just do your best to stay on top of security controls because there's groups like this that'll come and just take advantage of them. Yeah, and I think any in any future conflicts we see, like you'd mentioned, cyber is going to be at the forefront of what's happening. 
I actually just watched a made for mass public movie on Netflix called um, Leave the World Behind, which uh, basically documents what a war would look like that was completely cyber. And I found it quite fascinating to see it presented to the mainstream public. Wow. I might have to go check that out now. Wait, a world that's completely cyber or void of cyber? Uh, no, it's uh, the it, it's like a, a a war breaks out. We never actually get the conclusion of who's behind it, but it, it's a completely cyber assault. Oh, amazing! All right then, love to check it out then. Awesome, thank you. Definitely recommend it. All right, uh, which one are we here? Okay, this is an interesting one from the Hacker News. We're reporting on a critical Bluetooth security flaw that could be exploited by threat actors to take control of Android, Linux, macOS, and iOS devices, and that is quite a spread. Tracked as CVE-2023-45866, the issue relates to a case of authentication bypass that enables attackers to connect to susceptible devices and inject keystrokes to achieve code execution as the victim. According to security researcher Mark Newland, who disclosed the flaws to the software vendors in August 2023, quote, multiple Bluetooth stacks have authentication bypass vulnerabilities that permit an attacker to connect to a discoverable host without user confirmation and inject keystrokes. It's worth pointing out that the attack does not require any specialized hardware and can be performed from a Linux computer using a regular Bluetooth adapter. Additional technical details of the flaw are expected to be released in the future. I know this one requires proximity, but the fact that you can run it from any old regular Linux laptop and that it can compromise Android, Linux, macOS, and iOS makes it a huge threat in my mind. What are your thoughts on this one, Matt? Is this a real threat or a cool trick? No, I think this is one that is a threat, however, is likely going to be limited in scope, Chris, if that makes sense. I don't think this is something that we're going to see, you know, storm the internet and take over and whatnot. But this is one of those cases, one of those situations where next time you're at Black Hat or DEF CON and someone's like, lock <laughs> up all your Bluetooth, you know, <laughs> I may not be as fast to dismiss that claim this yeah. time, right? Now, I, I would argue and say that yes, the uh, you know so, so here here's when, when I when I read this one, Chris. Here's here's kind of how I how I viewed it. There is I'm not going to call it a vulnerability out there. However, it, there's a little bit of kind of a subverted trust mechanism where if I go and I create a Wi-Fi hotspot that a lot of folks are have already joined before. Think about Starbucks, for example, right? If I go and create a, a Wi-Fi hotspot that that matches the SSID of Starbucks, can I trick a device into joining that wireless range uh, automatically, and thus I can start to intercept traffic and everything like that, right? And that's exactly what like tools out there like Pineapples do and, and things like that is is they spoof SSIDs and they spoof networks so that you can get insight into them. I looked at this one in a very similar sense where. You know, it's not any specialized uh, hardware, meaning I don't need to go buy some super expensive whatever. I can do this from a Linux system with a Bluetooth adapter, but it's taking advantage of kind of a default unauthenticated parameter inside of the Bluetooth protocol, which I'm going to take a shot in the dark and say can likely be patched or can likely be fixed if it needs to. Right. So that's likely where it's probably going to be fixed. But from an attack perspective, and I'm quoting from the Hacker News here, the attack devices, uh, sorry, the attack deceives the target device into thinking that it's connected to a Bluetooth keyboard by taking advantage of an unauthenticated pairing mechanism that's defined in the Bluetooth specification. So let's go a step far. Chris, what do you have to do in order to pair to a Bluetooth device on your phone? Does it happen automatically or do you actually have to initiate it? 
uh, well, you put the device in pairing mode, and then generally, I think I have to approve it from some kind of menu, and, and even in certain cases, add a code. Exactly. So typically, there's a few steps that we have to go through. So I'm going to assume that this either subverts that whole process, or it takes advantage of devices you may have already connected to before, similar to that Wi-Fi SSID thing I talked about earlier. Either way, and I might be wrong, I would be happy for a listener to ping us in Slack and say, hey, Matt, here's the, here's the way it works. But in either way, you know, I feel like there might be an element of user interaction there that uh, that, that could help maybe stop some of this. But uh, I'd, I'd go another route and say that uh, a patch will likely be on the way that will probably, you know, put this thing in, in its shape and tell folks like, hey, don't, uh, you know, download this patch and use this. I will say that there have been a lot of very frequent Apple updates lately, and I know you and I have talked about this plenty of times, but could possibly be that. Um, however, I think, Chris, what you called out in the very beginning, which is the interesting part, is the wide range of devices that this, that this hits. Android, iOS, Linux, Mac OS. However, why didn't Windows come into play on this one? That's another thing to consider. And maybe, maybe we won't find the answer right now. But uh, interestingly enough, I, I think that there's many more Bluetooth platforms that are out there that are, um, you know, are, are, are not specifically being called out. Maybe they're not as vulnerable. But here we go. Uh, looking at the disclosure that came from Mark, let's see, Mark Newland. Looking at the disclosure that was written, let me tell you, here are the vulnerability details, if you will. Okay, you ready? Android devices are vulnerable whenever Bluetooth is enabled. That sounds pretty darn, uh, you know, pr- that sounds pretty damning. Linux slash BlueZ requires that Bluetooth is discoverable and connectable. And then iOS and macOS are vulnerable when Bluetooth enabled and a magic keyboard has been paired with the phone or the computer. So you see, the more we read into it, the more that there are some parameters that have to be in place, meaning, and again, I'm reading word for word what the vulnerability disclosure says. If I have a macOS or an iOS device and I have not paired a magic keyboard with it, I'm good to go. If I have an Android device and Bluetooth is disabled, obviously I'm, I'm good to go in that aspect. If I've got a Linux Blue Z and Bluetooth is not discoverable or connectable, then I'm good to go. So there are some easy ways around this. Um, it does say that there are some patches that are available out there as well. Uh, however, I just, you know, kind of want to reiterate here and restate, right? that there are some parameters that need to be met in certain operating systems in order for this thing to work. But like you said, if somebody drops into a busy place like Black Hat or or any crowded coffee shop, chances are they're going to be able to find somebody where they can... That's it. The larger population we have, then it's going to likely be the greater chance of someone being in an unpatched state. So, yeah. I'm going to put that one down to a cool trick instead of a real threat. All right. The last one we have today is another one from Hacker News collection of security flaws in the firmware implementation of 5G mobile network modems from major chipset vendors such as MediaTrek and Qualcomm impact USB and IoT modems as well as hundreds of smartphone models running Android and iOS. Of the 14 flaws, collectively called 5Ghoul, 10 affect 5G modems from the two companies out of which three have been classified as high severity vulnerabilities. According to the researchers, 5Ghoul vulnerabilities may be exploited to continuously launch attacks to drop the connections freeze the connections that involve manual reboot, or downgrade the 5G connectivity to 4G. So basically, it seems like attackers can accomplish a type of DDoS attack or downgrade the victim's handset to 4G from 5G and only if they were within radio range. 
I got to be honest, Matt, technically, this is kind of interesting, but I'm not going to lose any sleep over this one. How does this one fit on your threat scale? Is there an angle to this one I'm missing that makes it a real threat? Yeah, Chris, so I'm in the same boat as I was before. This looks like one of those things where in a lab slash mock very specific environment, it was probably really cool to see. And it's probably got a huge impact on, I don't know, maybe the future of chip design for 5Gs or something like that. I'll be honest with you, it's not my wheelhouse. However, this is another one of those, you know, instances where, again, I'm sure there's someone who can probably weaponize this and use it in, in a very close proximity sense. But I don't know if I necessarily see this causing a massive issue. I mean, I'll tell you right now, if I could not connect to 5G, I'd be happy. Just because I feel like it, uh, you know, it slows things down. However, the uh, if I'm reading, you know, and I read through this one, it, it does talk about uh, chipset vendors such as MediaTek and Qualcomm, as well as hundreds of smartphone models running Android and, and iOS. So, you know, it's pretty wide scope in this case. 714 smartphones from 24 brands, pretty much every phone brand you've ever seen or you can ever think of in this case are impacted here. However, I'm in the same boat, right? Chris, here we go. The attacks, in a nutshell, attempt to deceive a smartphone or 5G device to connect to a rogue base station, resulting in unintended consequences. This is probably one that's going to be very, very big from a nexus state espionage, maybe a spying perspective or something like that. I don't think it's something that the average, you know, the average bird is going to see in, in their normal course of business and whatnot. I think it's cool. It's good to know. But it seems like one of those things that probably gets deployed in very specific scenarios to connect like a phone or two to a specific base station to do something nefarious rather than let's overtake an entire population or something mm -hmm. like that. But to your point, right, let's look at the technical aspect of what's happening here. It is a permitted attacker within radio range to trigger a 5G connectivity downgrade or a denial of service by sending malformed frames to the target device. So essentially what's happening here, and we've seen this happen on um, wired networks and wireless networks before, it's taking advantage of the protocol and taking advantage of how the chipsets handle the malformed or an overage in traffic of a particular protocol or a particular frame that comes through. Uh, we see this happen in wired networks as well. You'll see switch attacks that do very, very similar where it's an overload trying to force port changes and things like that. But nonetheless, Again, you know, a neat attack, one thing that can certainly be impactful in the right situations, but I don't know if I see this one going wide scale. Doesn't mean we should know about it, but it's it's more of a cool read than something I'm going to lose sleep over. Yeah, 100%. Interesting that we had two today that kind of seemed like cool tricks and things to be aware of, but uh, not not major things we got to worry about. Yeah, these seem like ones that we'll probably hear about and see again at, you know, Black Hat next year or RSA or something where someone's done something incredibly amazingly technical and very, very awesome to read about and to see. And I might be wrong, and I hope I'm not, but I might be wrong, but I don't see, you know, the population of a country changing the models of their phone or upgrade or force hardware upgrades in order to combat this type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Matt. Well, it looks like we're at the end of it. Thanks again for coming out and sharing your expertise. Look forward to doing it again next week. As always, thanks again, Chris. Great having you. And congrats and best of luck on Friday. Oh, yeah. Thanks, man. I'm hoping we can beat the high watermark from last year. I think you'll get there. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, sir. Awesome. Thanks. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. 
If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.